University of California Television presents this podcast of a poetry reading by Ted Kuzer, America's newest poet laureate. This program was recorded at UC Santa Barbara in May 2005. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. A person can get terribly puffed up about being named Poet Laureate of the United States. And um, I wanted to tell you a little story that I've been telling at all my readings. And it actually happened fairly close here. Um, after I was appointed Poet Laureate, the uh, L.A. Times ran a story. And in the, uh, in the story was a little mug shot of me. And a friend of mine of many years who lives in Los Angeles uh, was showing the article to a little boy, a friend of his, I think six years old, whose name, as I remember, is Bucky. And um, so he had read the article about the Poet Laureate and uh, uh, to Bucky and talked about what the Poet Laureate did and what the Poet Laureate might do and so on. And he got to the end of the article and he said, so what do you think? And he said, I think he looks like a hobbit. And, and he does, you know. Um, and also that he, you know, he also went on to say, like he comes from Middle Earth, you know, which is, which is really where I've come from, where Garland, Nebraska is. So, um, and there, you know, there have been a lot of wonderful things like that. I, I recently got a whole packet of letters from some fifth graders, and one of them, I did a, a big reading at a, a big concert hall in Lincoln, Nebraska, maybe 1,200 people there, and, and uh, the, all these fifth graders wrote these letters to me, and one of them said, um, Dear Mr. Couser, I've never liked poetry, but I went to your event at the Lead Center, and my friend Eric was there, which made it all right. You know, but... <laughs> Um, I like to begin my readings with this poem, um, which uh, says something about the priorities that Americans uh, have for poetry. Selecting a reader. First, I would have her be beautiful and walking carefully up on my poetry at the loneliest moment of an afternoon, her hair still damp at the neck from washing it. She should be wearing a raincoat, an old one, dirty from not having money enough for the cleaners. She will take out her glasses, and there in the bookstore, she will thumb over my poems, then put the book back up on its shelf. She will say to herself, for that kind of money, I can get my raincoat cleaned. <laughs> and she will. We have to... We have to remember that people have other things to do with their money other than buying books of poems. Um, this one, just to tell you a little bit about where I live, uh, Lincoln, Nebraska is on the east end of Nebraska. It's the capital city, 200,000 pop, 200, population or more. Um, Garland, Nebraska is about 20 miles away from Lincoln and has a population of about 260 people. And we live about three miles from Garland where there's just the population of, of my wife and I and two dogs. And this is a little, this is a poem that describes um, a spring 
uh, on, on my place in late spring. One of the National Guard's F-4 jet fighters making a long approach to the Lincoln airfield comes howling in over the treetops, its shadow flapping along behind it like the skin of a sheep, setting the coyotes crying back in the woods and then the dogs. And then there is a sudden quiet that rings a little, the way an empty pan rings when you wipe it dry. And then it is Sunday again, a summer Sunday afternoon, and beyond my window, the Russian olives sigh foolishly into the air through the throats of their flowers, and bluegills nibble the clouds afloat on the pond. Under the windmill, a cluster of peonies huddles, bald-headed now and standing in piles of old papers. Beneath its lipstick, the mouth of the tulip is twisted. Spring moves on, on her run-down, broken toe shoes into the summer, trailing green ribbons of silk. I have been reading for hours, or intending to read, but over the bee song of the book, I could faintly hear my neighbor up the road a quarter mile, calling out to his daughter, and hear her calling back, not in words, but in musical notes. And now that they have fallen quiet, and I have listened long into their absence, I have forgotten my place in the world. But the world knows my place, and stands and holds a chair for me, here on these acres near Garland, Nebraska. This April, in good health, I entered my 66th year. The perfect porcelain bells of lily of the valley ring into the long, shy ears of the ferns, and the horsefly sits in the sun and twirls his mustache and brushes the dust from his satin sleeves. Thank you. This next little group of poems are... Um, in a sense, they're sort of snapshots. Um, I, uh, I spend a, t a lot of time just watching people, um, and this little group is pretty much representative of these, uh, that kind of a poem. Tattoo. What once was meant to be a statement, a dripping dagger held in the fist of a shuddering heart, is now just a bruise on a bony old shoulder. The spot where vanity once punched him hard and the ache lingered on. He looks like someone you had to reckon with, strong as a stallion, fast and ornery. But on this chilly morning, as he walks between the tables at a yard sale, with the sleeves of his tight black T-shirt rolled up to show us who he was, he is only another old man, picking up broken tools and putting them back his heart gone soft and blue with stories. For those, uh, there are probably some tattoos out here in the audience, and that, in a sense, is a poem about what tattoos look like after 40 years. Um, <laughs> or 50, maybe. But I guess you can take them off now with lasers and so on. This guy wouldn't have had that opportunity. Um, here's another one of these uh, snapshots. A Rainy Morning A young woman in a wheelchair, wearing a black nylon poncho spattered with rain, is pushing herself through the morning. 
You have seen how pianists sometimes bend forward to strike the keys, then lift their hands, draw back to rest, then lean again to strike just as the chord fades. Such is the way this woman strikes at the wheels, then lifts her long white fingers, letting them float, then bends again to strike just as the chair slows as if into a silence. So expertly she plays the chords of this difficult music she has mastered, her wet face beautiful in its concentration, while the wind turns the pages of rain. This next one, um, back in the, uh, in the 70s and 60s, when people had very straight, long hair, you'll remember that when they walked, they walked like this. Swinging their hair from side to side, and it was almost a kind of an anthropological event, you know. That, 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 um, and and I've noticed that now that students are all wearing backpacks, that they have a they have a, a way of walking like this when they're walking. They kind of are sort of paddling ahead. And on the campus at the University of Nebraska, one day I saw this student with a green backpack on, kind of paddling ahead, and. This poem came out of that. Are there any, is there anybody in here who has their ball cap on backwards? I, I, can't, I can't see, but that happens in here too. Um, student. The green shell of his backpack makes him lean into wave after wave of responsibility, and he swings his stiff arms and cupped hands paddling ahead. He has extended his neck to its full length, and his chin, hard as a beak, breaks the cold surf. He's got his baseball cap on backwards as up he crawls out of the froth of a hangover and onto the sand of the future and lumbers heavy with hope into the library. <laughs> You've seen that guy. Um, every year, um, for the last 19 years now, I have written an annual Valentine poem. And uh, what I try to do with these things is they're not at all traditional Valentine poems, but they're, um, um, you know, I try to put a heart in them or something or other that kind of ties them to, um, to Valentine's. And, if, and I send this to a list of women who want to be on my Valentine list. <laughs> and it's... It, at last count, it's running about, I have about 700 people on this. And if there are women in the audience tonight who would like to be on my Valentine list, all you have to do is afterwards give me a slip of paper, but I don't want an email address. This is a postal project. I put them on little postcard-sized cards. So give me your mailing address in three lines, because that's all my computer can handle. And uh, I'll put you on the Valentine list for next year. Um, anyway, um, this, is, this is the Valentine from 2004, and I've included it here because it, too, is a look at people uh, in this sense um, in, a, in doing a very ordinary thing. Um, those other poems, the student and the woman in the wheelchair and everything are similar, but this is, this is even a more ordinary act, splitting an order. I like to watch an old man cutting a sandwich in half. Maybe an ordinary cold roast beef on whole wheat bread, no pickles or onion. 
keeping his shaky hands steady by placing his forearms firm on the edge of the table and using both hands, the left to hold the sandwich in place and the right to cut it surely corner to corner, observing his progress through glasses that moments before he wiped with his napkin, and then to see him lift half onto the extra plate that he asked the server to bring, and then to wait, offering the plate to his wife while she slowly unrolls her napkin and places her spoon, her knife, and her fork in their proper places, then smooths the starched white napkin over her knees and meets his eyes and holds out both old hands to him. Here's another poem of a similar thing that is a... I, I write a lot about uh, gestures of one kind or another. I'm very interested in gesture. And uh, you've, you've all seen the television weatherman standing with the projection of the weather map and as talking to the monitor over here, watching the monitor and going like this with the, as they talk, you know, <laughs> and sort of stroking the map. And this, this poem came up out of that. Um, this is the title poem of one of my books, Weather Central. Each evening at 6.15, the weatherman turns a shoulder to us, extends his hand, and talking softly as a groom, cautiously smooths and strokes the massive, dappled flank of the continent. Touching the cloudy whorls that drift like galaxies across its hide, tracing the loops of harness with their barbs and bells and pennants. Then, with a horsefly's touch, he brushes a mountain range and sets a shutter running just under the skin. His bearing is cavalier from years of success, and he laughs at the science, yet makes no sudden moves that might startle that splendid order or loosen the physics. One would not want to wake the enormous Appaloosa mare of weather asleep in her stall on a peaceful moonlit night. Thank you. Skater. Again, a, a sort of gesture. Skater. She was all in black but for a yellow ponytail that trailed from her cap and bright blue gloves that she held out wide, the feathery fingers spread as surely she stepped click-clack onto the frozen top of the world. And there, with a clatter of blades, she began to braid a loose path that broadened into a meadow of curls. Across the ice she swooped and then turned back and halfway bent her legs and leapt into the air, the way a crane leaps, blue gloves lifting her lightly, and turned a snappy half-turn there in the wind before coming down, arms wide, skating backward right out of that moment, smiling back at the woman she'd been just an instant before. at the cancer clinic. She is being helped toward the open door that leads to the examining rooms by two young women I take to be her sisters. 
Each bends to the weight of an arm and steps with the straight, tough bearing of courage. At what must seem to be a great distance, a nurse holds the door, smiling and calling encouragement. How patient she is in the crisp white sails of her clothes. The sick woman peers from under her funny knit cap to watch each foot swing, scuffing forward, and take its turn under her weight. There is no restlessness or impatience or anger anywhere in sight. Grace fills the clean mold of this moment, and all the shuffling magazines grow still. I was very honored that I, I gave that, um, a copy of that poem to my doctor at that clinic, and he had it enlarged and, and, and framed, and it hangs at the, behind the nurse's station there at the, at the clinic. And I thought, I have finally written something that is going to be of some use to someone, you know, after all these years. Um, there are these little moments in life where there's a lot of energy, and one of those moments is that woman skating and jumping and turning in the air and then skating backwards out of that. That sort of thing fascinates me. And here's one that I, th I would guess that nearly everyone in here has experienced at some time, that moment when you meet somebody on the street and you don't know whether you ought to speak to them or not because you can't remember whether you knew them, you know, and so on. <laughs> in passing, from a half block off, I see you coming, walking briskly along, carrying parcels, furtively glancing up into the faces of people approaching, looking for someone you know, holding your smile in your mouth like a pebble, keeping it moist and ready, being careful not to swallow. I know that hope so open on your face, know how your heart would lift to see just one among us who remembered. If only someone would call out your name, would smile, so happy to see you again. You shift your heavy parcels, hunch up your shoulders, and press ahead into the moment. From a few feet away, you recognize me, or think you do. I see you preparing your face, getting your greeting ready. Do I know you? Both of us wonder. Swiftly, we meet and pass, averting our eyes, close enough to touch but not touching. I could not let you know that I've forgotten, and yet you know. I write a, also write a, uh, lots of poems about things, and I like to write about very ordinary things, the, the kind of things that we all have around us all the time. This is, a, this is pretty representative of that kind of poem. It's called A Spiral Notebook. The bright wire rolls like a sleeper twisting in and out of his dreams, for it could hold a record of dreams if you wanted to buy it for that, though it seems to be meant for more serious work with its college-ruled lines and its cover that states in emphatic white letters, Five Subject Notebook. <laughs> it seems a part of growing old is no longer to have five subjects. each demanding an equal share of attention, set apart by brown cardboard dividers. 
but instead to stand in a drugstore and hang on to one subject a little too long. Like this notebook you weigh in your hands, passing your fingers over its surfaces as if it were some kind of wonder. Um, David Quammen, some of you may have read David Quammen. He's a naturalist, has written some really marvelous books about nature. Um, and in one of the books, he talks about a moth that lives on tears. The, the, moth, the moth gets its nourishment from drinking tears. And no poet could re resist something like that. Um, this, poem is, this poem is about that, and the title of the poem is The Actual Species of the Moth, which is Lobocraspus grisifusa. This is the tiny moth who lives on tears, who drinks like a deer at the gleaming pool at the edge of the sleeper's eye. The touch of its mouth is light as a cloud's reflection. In your dream, a moonlit figure appears at your bedside and touches your face. He asks if he might share the poor bread of your sorrow. You show him the table. The two of you talk long into the night, but by morning the words are forgotten. You awaken serene in a sunny room, rubbing the dust of his wings from your eyes. I've also written many poems about the generation, uh, my, my grandparents' generation. I, um, I had lots of great aunts and great uncles who were fascinating to me. My immediate family is really quite small. I have one sister. I have two first cousins. But in, the, in those older generations, there were just lots of people, and I was very taken with them. My, my mother grew up in northeastern Iowa, far northeastern Iowa, which is a very beautiful place, uh, um, bluffs that were untouched by glaciation, um, the Mississippi River coming through there and so on. But these people who lived there had brought much of the 19th century forward with them. They, were, they had all been born in the 1870s in that area and, era and so on. And so I, as a boy, I spent lots and lots of time watching them, I think, and, um, and seeing how they lived their lives. Many of them still spoke German, um, and they were, they were people of marvelous thrift and so on. I've written about that in some of my other books. But this next, uh, this next poem is about, um, it's called Depression Glass. And for those of you who are younger in here, may not have seen Depression Glass. Depression Glass is a kind of colored, very cheap, um, sets of dishes uh, in greens or pinks or yellows and so on, and and you got them at the grocery store for for buying groceries. But those people thought it was very special stuff. And my grandmother had this set of rose pink depression glass, and this is a poem about that. And those of you who have ever tried to drink coffee out of a glass cup knows how know how very quickly it cools off, uh, and uh, that's a part of this too. Depression glass. It seemed those rose-pink dishes she kept for special company were always cold, brought down from the shelf in jingling stacks, the plates like the panes of ice she broke from the water bucket winter mornings, the flaring cups like tulips that opened too early and got bitten by frost. They chilled the coffee no matter how quickly you drank, while a heavy, everyday mug would have kept a splash hot for the better part of a conversation. It was hard to hold up your end of the gossip with your coffee cold. 
But it was a special occasion, just the same, to sit at her kitchen table and sip the bitter percolation of the past week's rumors from cups it had taken a year to collect at the grocery with one piece free for each five pounds of flour. Now, this next poem, everyone in, the, in this audience has had this experience. Not, perhaps not quite as I render it, but this is always a lot of, this poem's always a lot of fun for me to read because I, I really feel like I'm sharing it with everyone. It's called The Urine Specimen. <laughs> in the clinic, a sun-bleached shell of stone on the shore of the city, you enter the last small chamber, a little closet chastened with pearl, cool, white, and glistening. And over the chilly well of the toilet, you trickle your precious sum in a cup. It's as simple as that. But the heat of this gold, your body's melted and poured out into a form, begins to enthrall you. Warming your hand with your flesh's fevers in a terrible way. It's like holding an organ, spleen or fatty pancreas, a lobe from your foamy brain still steaming with worry. You know that just outside, a nurse is waiting to cool it into a gel and slice it onto a microscope slide for the doctor, who in it will read your future wringing his hands. You lift the chalice and toast and toast the long life of your friend there in the mirror who wanly smiles but does not drink to you. Um, my father told me one time that at the that in the early years of the 20th century, when he was a boy, there were vendors who went from public school to public school selling portfolios of great art reproductions. And that among those were all the pictures we saw in schoolrooms when we were small. Uh, the, um, the, the standard Lincoln, the Gilbert Stewart portrait of Washington, the, the end of the trail, the Indian with his, with his lance down, the wolf looking down at the cabin in the snow, the Indian making a pot by the fire. All those, all those pictures that were in schoolrooms all came from this set. And I thought it would be interesting to try to write some poems about that because I was, it, 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 it fascinated me, the idea that perhaps our perceptions of the world were shaped by having looked every day at those same pictures, you know. Um, you know, you know, in a in a small community, a rural school, those those pictures, Malays, the Gleaners, for instance. I mean, how did that affect us? And so I started writing poems about them, and and this is one that I, the one that I felt was most successful. It's about Gilbert Stuart's portrait of Washington. This is the unfinished Washington, the one that the bottom half is you know is blank, just canvas. You know it as well as the back of your hand that face like a blushing bouquet of pink peonies set in the shadows of war, the father of our country, patient, sucking the past from his wooden teeth. 
His famous portrait, never completed, hung on the wall at the front of the classroom next to a black octagonal clock with the ghost of a teacher trapped inside, tapping out time with a piece of chalk. It was easy to see his attention was elsewhere. He'd left a dozen campfires burning out there at the front of his face, then retreated behind them. At 58, he was old and broken. This was no way to use up the days of a soldier. Celebrity irked him. He had little time for the likes of Gilbert Stewart, that son of a snuff-grinding Tory, that slackard who'd sat out the war with the English. Perched on a chair in a cold stone barn, according to Stewart, he smiled only once when a stallion ran past. He cared more for thoroughbred horses and farming than he did for the presidency. On the wall between us and the future, at the point where all of the lines converged, George Washington, like any other man, suppressed a deep sigh. So heavy was life, how futile it seemed to protest. We learned our lessons while the big clock clacked, its Roman numerals arranged in a wreath and sealed under glass. Those were lovely calico autumns, then winter passed with its long, clean penance of light, then spring with its chaffy rustle. We thought those aisles were parallel, that our days would never arrive at the vanishing point. Before us always, he who could never tell a lie kept his jaws closed on the truth. One of the one of the pleasures of doing this kind of work, um, going from place to place and talking about poetry, um, are the, the people um, I've met, really some marvelous people. I've met some great people here. Um, but I did a reading in the Philadelphia area. And after uh, the reading, I was invited to the home of my host for dinner. And the woman um, was the step granddaughter of John Cornos. John Cornos was one of the images poets who is all but forgotten, but he was very much in that group, and he knew everybody. Um, and, you know, Philadelphia was a great literary center and, and so on. And um, so after dinner, uh, we were sitting in the living room, and she said, I think I've got some things I'd like to show you. And she brought out a big cardboard box, uh, like this, filled with personal correspondence that John Cornos had. In it were letters from William Butler Yeats and T.S. Eliot and um, Ezra Pound and calling cards from Ford Maddox Ford and all these people, you know. And I was, you know, being a literary gent, you know, I was really taken with all these objects, you know. I'm just completely speechless about them. And after I'd looked through them and, and, uh, set them beside the chair, and she said, and you're interested in painting too, aren't you? And I said, well, I like to paint, and I, I collect paintings. I love looking at paintings. And, and she said, well, this will interest you too. And she brought out this long wooden box and set it on my knees, and this, that's what this poem is, a box of pastels. I once held on my knees a simple wooden box in which a rainbow lay, dusty and broken. It was a set of pastels that had years before belonged to the painter Mary Cassatt. 
and all of the colors she'd used in her work lay open before me. Those hues she'd most used, the peaches and pinks, were worn down to stubs, while the cool colors, violet, ultramarine, had been set scarcely touched to one side. She'd had little patience with darkness, and her heart held only a measure of shadow. I touched the warm dust of those colors, her tools, and left there with light on the tips of my fingers. Um, I write a kind of a, a poem that really uh, very frequently, and I'm kind of known for this, a kind of poem that begins with a metaphor. I, I take a comparison and I sort of stretch it as much as I can. And uh, I, I wanted to include this poem for you because it's um, very representative of that kind of poem. I was, I was thinking one morning, I do my writing every morning from, and I've done this for many, many years. I get up at 4.30 and I write till about 7. And I was thinking one morning about a telescope on a, on a stand like this and, and how it is a tube and how light rushes through it like a fluid from the stars and so on. So I began to amplify that metaphor. Telescope. This is the pipe that pierces the dam that holds back the universe, that takes off some of the pressure, keeping the weight of the unknown from breaking through and washing us all down the valley. Because of this small tube, through which a cold light rushes from the bottom of time. The depth of the stars stays always constant, and we are able to sleep, at least for now, beneath the straining wall of darkness. That's one kind of a poem in which you take a rather simple object, an ordinary object, and, and build it up ornamentally in a way, and stretch it out into something else. Then there's a kind of poem that many of us write where the message of the, of the experience is so strong that it needs not, it, you don't need to decorate it in any way. There's a, if you can deliver the information straight ahead without figures of speech and so on, it, it can be more effective. This is the other kind of poem um, called A Deck of Pornographic Playing Cards. <laughs> we were 10 or 11 my friend and I, when we found them up under a bridge on top of a beam where pigeons were resting. Someone had carefully hidden them there. On each was a black and white photo, no two cards alike. We grew quiet and older. <laughs> Young men on our haunches, staring at what we feared might be the future. The pigeons flapped back to their roosts, rustling and cooing. The river gurgled as it slipped from the bridge's cool shadow. There were women with big muzzled dogs, women with bottles and broom handles. Stallions stood over the bodies of others. The women smiled and licked their lips with tongues like thorns. We grew old. We were two old men with stiff legs and sad hearts. We had wanted to laugh, but we couldn't. We had thought we were boys, come there to throw stones at the pigeons. 
but we were already dying inside. I have a very good friend who is a noted landscape painter on the Great Plains. His name is Keith Jacobshagen, raised in Kansas. His father was a test pilot for the uh, aircraft companies in Wichita, and Keith flew with his father a great deal and, and, uh, and really got a sense of the landscapes down there. His paintings are magnificent. And, uh, um, but it's an old Kansas family, and he told me this family story. And it's, um, it's a story that's very much like a Willa Cather novel, I think, um, however compressed in this poem. But um, the old man... In this story is Keith's grandfather, and the young woman who is, whose body has been sent back on the train is his aunt. You no, notice that this is almost, it, it feels quite cinematic, I think, this whole thing. You could see this being filmed. The beaded purse. Dressed in his church suit and under the shadow of his hat, the old man stood on the wooden depot platform three feet above the rest of Kansas, while the westbound freight chuffed in and hissed to a stop. He and the agent and two men, commercial travelers waiting to go on west, pulled mailbags out of the steam, then slid out his daughter's coffin, canvas over wood, and set it on a nearby baggage cart. Not till the train had rolled away and tooted once as it passed the shacks on the leading edge of the distance, and not till the agent had disappeared dragging the bags of mail behind did the old man pry up the nailed-down lid with a bar he'd brought in the wagon. Hat in hand, he took a long look. He hadn't seen her in a dozen years. At 19, without his blessing, she'd gone back east to be an actress, now and then writing her mother in a carefree, ne'er-do-well cursive to say she was happy, living in style. A week before, the agent sent word that there was a telegram waiting, and the old man and his wife rode the town to read that their daughter had died and her remains were on the way home. Remains, that's how they put it. She was wearing a fancy yellow dress, but was no longer young and pretty. She looked like one of the worn-out dolls she'd left in her room at the farm, where he would sometimes go to sit. A bag of women's private underthings had been stuffed between her feet, and someone had pushed down next to her an evening bag beaded with pearls. He opened the purse and found it empty. So he took a few bills out of his pocket and folded them in, then snapped it closed for her mother to find. Then, with the back of the bar, he tapped the lid in place and went to find the station agent. The two of them lifted the coffin down and carried it a few hard yards across the sunny, dusty floor of Kansas and loaded it onto the creaking wagon. Then, clapping his hat on his head, and slapping the plump rump of his mare with the reins, he started the long haul home with his rich and famous daughter. Isn't that a marvelous story? Just uh, I'm going to read uh, a few family poems. Um, 
This is uh, this first one is about my mother's um, cousin, one of her first cousins. Uh, I went to visit him at a nursing home late in his life, um, about a year before he died, and um, he had gotten all dressed up for me uh, to visit, and he had on a brand new plaid shirt, and his one, uh, his left hand had a very typical, very old people, he had a very pronounced, very, very dark age spot that went up into the sleeve of his shirt, um, and that appears in the poem. And one of the reasons I wanted to write this poem, one of the reasons for writing anything, and all of you, I would guess, who do some writing know this, is that if we write about these people uh, whom we have loved, it is a way of keeping them alive a little bit longer. This man, Ira Friedlein, who had that beautiful name, Ira Friedlein, um, has been dead for 20 years. And every time I get to read this poem for a group like you, I get to bring him up just a little bit into the light again, you know. Um, A goodbye handshake. Though you in the nursing home are miles behind me now, your hand with its dark blue age spots is here in my hand. Your fingers warm from all of the hot steel handles they held in your 88 years. Levers of threshing machines, of sickle bar mowers and balers. But cooling now, and slowly going all blue-black over brown, like a pool of blue oil on the floor of a barn. That darkness working its way up into the cuff of your new plaid shirt, up past your elbow, sharp as a plowshare, there on the wheelchair armrest, easing over your heart like a shadow. A hundred miles down the road, stopped by the highway and sitting in shade at the edge of a shimmering cornfield, I say goodbye. I am headed both farther and further than you, Ira Friedlein. With love, I take your blue-black hand, which has held nearly everything once and has squeezed it shyly and politely. This, is a, this next one is an elegy from my mother. Um, I wrote it uh, exactly a month after she had died um, as a sort of letter to her. Mother. Mid-April already, and the wild plums bloom at the roadside, a lacy white against the exuberant jubilant green of new grass and the dusty fading black of burnt-out ditches. No leaves, not yet, only the delicate star-petaled blossoms sweet with their timeless perfume. You have been gone a month today and have missed three rains and one night-long watch for tornadoes. I sat in the cellar from six to eight while fat spring clouds went somersaulting, rumbling east. Then it poured, a storm that walked on legs of lightning, dragging its shaggy belly over the fields. The meadowlarks are back, and the finches are turning from green to gold. Those same two geese have come to the pond again this year, honking in over the trees and splashing down. They never nest, but stay a week or two, then leave. The peonies are up, the red sprouts burning in circles like birthday candles, for this is the month of my birth, as you know, the best month to be born in, thanks to you, everything ready to burst with living. 
There will be no more new flannel nightshirts sewn on your old black singer, no birthday card addressed in a shaky but businesslike hand. You asked me if I would be sad when it happened, and I am sad. But the iris I moved from your house now hold in the dusty, dry fists of their roots green knives and forks as if waiting for dinner, as if spring were a feast. I thank you for that. Were it not for the way you taught me to look at the world, to see the life at play in everything, I would have to be lonely forever. On the morning after Mother died, uh, she had one remaining first cousin at that time, uh, about a oh, hundred miles from from where she was living, um, and I wanted to tell the cousin personally. So I got in the car real early in the morning and drove up there. And uh, this is an account of that experience. Um, um, some of you may have had similar experiences with very old people who have begun to see phantoms. Uh, it's very common, apparently, um, and I was really struck by what happened that day. Pearl, her name was Pearl Richards. El Cater, Iowa, a morning in March, the Turkey River running brown and wrinkly from a late spring snow in Minnesota, a white two-story house on Mulberry Street, windows flashing with sun, and I had come a hundred miles to tell our cousin Pearl that her childhood playmate, Vera, my mother, had died. I knocked and knocked at the door with its lace-covered oval of glass, and at last she came from the shadows and with one finger hooked the curtain aside, peered into my face through her spectacles, and held that pose, a grainy family photograph that could have been that of her mother. I called out, Pearl, it's Ted, it's Vera's boy. And my voice broke, for it came to me nearly sixty. I was still my mother's boy, that boy for the rest of my life. Pearl at ninety was one year older than mother and a widow for twenty years. She wore a pale blue cardigan buttoned over a house dress, and she shook my hand in the tentative way of old women who rarely have hands to shake. When I told her that mother was gone, that she died the evening before, she said she was sorry that Vera wrote me a letter a while ago to say she wasn't good. We went to the kitchen, and I sat at the table while she heated a pan of water and made us cups of instant coffee. She told me of a time when the two of them were girls and crawled out onto the porch roof to spy on my Aunt Mabel and a suitor who were swinging below. We got so excited, we had to pee. <laughs> and we couldn't wait and peed right there on the roof. And it, and it trickled down over the edge and dripped in the bushes. But Mabel and that fella never heard. <laughs> we took our cups into her living room where stripes from the drawn blinds draped over the World's Fair satin pillows. She took the couch and I took the chair across from her. I've had some trouble with health myself, she said, taking off her glasses and wiping them. And I said, she looked good, though. And she said, I've started seeing people who aren't here. I know they're not real, but I see them the same. 
They come in the house and sit around and never say a word. They keep their heads down or cover their faces with cloths. I'm not afraid, but I don't know what they want of me. You won't be able to see, but one's right there on the staircase where the light falls through that window, a man in a light gray outfit. I turned to look at the landing where a patch of light fell over the carpeted steps. Sometimes I think that my Max is with them. One seems to know his way around the house. What bothers me, Tid, is that they've started to write out lists of everything I own. They go from room to room, three or four at a time, picking up things and putting them back. I've talked to Wilson, the chiropractor, and he just says that maybe it's time for me to go to the nursing home. I asked her what her regular doctor said, and she said she didn't go there anymore, that he's not much good. But surely there's medicine, I said, and she said maybe so. And then there was a pause that filled the room. After a while, we began to talk again of other things, and there were some stories we laughed a little over, and I wept a little. And then it was time for me to go, to drive the long miles back. And she slowly walked me to the door and took my hand again, our warm, bony hands among the light hands of the shadows that reached to touch us but drew back. And I cleared my throat and said, I hope she'd take care of herself and think about seeing a real medical doctor. And she said she'd give some thought to that. And I took my hand from hers and waved goodbye, and the door closed. And behind the lace, the others stepped out of the stripes of light and resumed their inventory, touching the spoon I used and subtracting it from the sum of the spoons in the kitchen drawer. Um, and it and it seems to me that those those phantoms have a function here. They have come to get her ready to go, and they're, uh, all that inventory is all part of that. I think. Um, and uh, I've talked to a couple of therapists about this sort of thing. And they said it's really quite common that this sort of thing happens. This is a poem about my father. Um, it begins rather inappropriately, but you'll see me recover quite quickly. Um, my dad was a terrible hypochondriac. Uh, he, he fretted about everything. Um, I remember once when he was about my age now, uh, he developed an incisional hernia on the side, a little bump on one side, and he didn't even know he had it, but a doctor noticed it and immediately began giving him terrible pain because of this thing. And my grandfather was then 98 years old, my mother's father, and uh, my parents went up to visit him once a week in the nursing home. And mother told me this story, that they were up there one day, and, and my grandfather uh, at 98 said to Dad, uh, Ted, you don't uh, look like you... Uh, feel too well today. And he said, oh, Dad, he said, you know, I've got this terrible hernia over here. I'm going to have to have surgery and have it repaired. And Granddad said, you know, I had a hernia once. He said, it must have been about, about 1920. He said, you know, it was one of those ones down below, he said. And he said, I went out in the barn and I took a belt and, I, and an old tire and I, I cut a patch out of the tire and threaded it on that belt. And he said, I wore that for about, oh, maybe six months. And he said, you know, that hernia went away. But, but here's, here's my dad. Um, 
he was born on um, he was born on May the nineteenth, and um, and the lilacs in Iowa are blooming at that time, and that appears in this poem, Father. Today you would be ninety-seven if you had lived, and we would all be miserable. You and your children driving from clinic to clinic, an ancient, fearful hypochondriac and his fretful son and daughter, asking directions, trying to read the complicated, fading map of cures. But with your dignity intact, you have been gone for 20 years, and I am glad for all of us, although I miss you every day. The heartbeat under your necktie, the hand kept cupped on the back of my neck, Old spice in the air, your voice delighted with stories. On this day each year, you love to relate that at the moment of your birth, your mother glanced out the window and saw lilacs in bloom. Well, today, lilacs are blooming in side yards all over Iowa, still welcoming you. And on his on the on when, on the birthday, the May the nineteenth of uh, two thousand and two, when he would have been a hundred years old, my wife and I drove over to Ames, which is about five hours from where we live, and went to the house where he was born. And there, in the in the side yard, is that lilac bush, uh, hundred year old lilac bush, still with some blooms on it. I'm here this evening, as many of you know, um, because Robert Creeley died. Robert Creeley was scheduled to give this uh, lecture evening, and I thought it would be good to read one of Creeley's poems before I end. Um, I'm going to read one more of my poems after this one, but this is a very short poem, as Creeley's poems, most of them were. Echoes. Step through the mirror faint with the old desire. Want it again? Never mind who's the friend. Say yes to the wasted, empty spaces. The guesses were as good as any. No mistakes. And then this last poem is a, um, a self-portrait of me. And then afterwards, I'd, I'd be very pleased to take questions again we're going to have to have you come up and use the microphones because this is being taped. I hope you won't mind doing that. Um, maybe we can have the house lights come up a little bit too so I can see all of you. At any rate, here's the, this last poem is a self-portrait of me. These little towns that are mentioned in this poem are within easy driving distance of where I live. That was I. I was that older man you saw sitting in a confetti of yellow light and falling leaves on a bench at the empty horseshoe courts in Thayer, Nebraska. Brown jacket, soft cap, wiping my glasses. I had noticed, of course, that the rows of sunken horseshoe pits were like old graves, but I was not letting my mind go there. Instead, I was looking with hope to a grapevine draped over a fence in a neighboring yard, and knowing that I could hold on, yes, that was I. And that was I, the round-shouldered man you saw that afternoon in Rising City as you drove past the abandoned mini-golf. Fists deep in my pockets, nose dripping, my cap pulled down against the wind as I walked the miniature main street 
peering into the child-sized plywood store, the poor red school, the faded barn, thinking that not even in such an abbreviated world, with no more than its little events, the snap of a grasshopper's wing against a paper cup, could a person control this life? Yes, that was I. And that was I you spotted that evening just before dark in a weedy cemetery west of Staplehurst, down on one knee as if trying to make out the name on a stone. Some lonely old man, you thought, come there to pity himself in the reliable sadness of grass among graves. But that was not so. Instead, I had found in its perfect web a handsome black and yellow spider, pumping its legs to try to shake my footing as if I were a gift, an enormous moth that it could snare and eat. Yes, that was I. Thank you.